It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests. J.P. Delacamera of Fox Sports talks about his role as the lead play-by-play broadcaster for this summer's Women's World Cup. And Ben McCreel of OptiPro talks about the latest in soccer data analytics. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Joining us now is JP Delacamera, the legend himself, who it has just been announced will be on the lead broadcast team for Fox Sports, which also employs me, full disclosure, during the Women's World Cup this summer. JP, thanks for joining me. Grant, always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to France. We still have several games to go before we hit the Women's World Cup, but I think it's going to be another exciting tournament. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, too. We are recording this on March 4th, so this is before the U.S. plays uh, against uh, Brazil in uh, the She Believes Cup. You've already called the first two games, uh, both ties for the U.S. against England and Japan, but I'll also want to talk about the Women's World Cup itself and your preparations for that. And I'm curious, you've been on the podcast before, uh, including during major tournaments like the Men's World Cup last year. How do you prepare between now and June for the start of a World Cup? Well, I, I don't get too heavy, Grant, in the names yet. You know, obviously names and numbers because they don't announce rosters until we get closer. But, you know, Teams in this tournament, for example, um, I've got some good notes now on both England and Japan. And after the Brazil game, I'll also have some good notes. I don't think rosters are going to change, you know, a whole lot from from the 23 that you're seeing, let's say, with Brazil. You know, I got to think that at this point, coaches know at least 18 of those players. I, I have to think that way. You know, and the same with England. There are players that are uh, coming back from injuries, that people are, are concerned about. So there's always going to be spots like that. But I think the prep becomes a bit, I don't want to say easier, but uh, maybe less challenging when you can see these teams in person. Mm-hmm. I think videotape will tell you a lot. And, and Fox is always great at 
providing us with other matches that we can't get to in person. But the best for me is the eye test. And when I get to see England up front, you know, and, and talk to Phil Neville, uh, we talked to the Brazil coach today, we've talked to the Japan coach, you know, with a translator. Uh, I think that that all helps us with our prep for the Women's World Cup. Now, what was your first Women's World Cup to broadcast? Was it 95? It was 1995. And if we go back in time, all we did, and ESPN covered the games, I think it was Grand Slam Sports. The, the names, the companies have changed over the years, but I think it was Grand Slam Sports at the time um, hired me and Amy Allman to be the voices for that. And all we did was the U.S. games. There were no other games that we did. And at the end of the tournament, they thought the U.S. was going to get to the final. So as we got closer to the end and we we see that the U.S. loses in that game to Norway, there was a big meeting and what do we do next? Like, are we going to do the final or are we going to do the U.S. game? And the decision was made to do the U.S. game. So in that Women's World Cup, this is how far we've come, that Women's World Cup, we did whatever it was at the time. I think it was six games uh, and all U.S. games, and we did not do the final. And now on Fox, we're doing every single game, all 52 games. They're all live. 22 of them are on Big Fox. So it's really come a long way since 1995 and even before that in 1991. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh you know, when you look at the Women's World Cup and, and how it's changed over time, are there any other little details from that 1995 Women's World Cup in Sweden that stick out to you now as being that's uh, definitely in the past? Yeah, I do remember when I was there thinking that we as a country will do a much better job in 99. I, I felt like it was a big secret in Sweden. The country was great. People were great, but stadiums were not. Um, I remember what I would consider maybe high school or small college stadiums that we were doing most of these games. And I, I want to say, Grant, I think it was Helsingborg, maybe. It was, it was um, I think it was Helsingborg. There was one stadium that I remember was a very good stadium because it housed a professional team. But I, I found that nobody in the country seemed to know. You know, there weren't signs in the city it, it seemed like to me it was a big secret. I, I do remember that from, from Sweden. I also remember that uh, it never got dark, right, when we were there in the summer. And, and so I, I think I put a pillow over my head partially so that uh, I could make the room a little bit darker. You know, you'd be walking at 11 o'clock at night and you'd swear it was maybe 7 because it, it really wasn't dark. So those are the things that I can remember about Sweden and, and all of that was different when it came to 1999. And it's pretty incredible. It is now 2019, JP. 20 years have passed since that 1999 Women's World Cup that changed the culture beyond sports. And if you go back and look at highlights, full games from 99, that was your voice calling yep. them. Yeah, and that I, was before social media. If, if we had social media the way it is today back then, you know, imagine someone like Mia Hamm, if she was on Twitter, how many followers, you know, <laughs> she would have had, right? Everybody would have been jumping on that bandwagon and, and the same with the others. So uh, it has come a long way from 99, but that was certainly a huge moment, not just for women's soccer, women's sports, but also all of soccer in this country. Well, I was actually talking earlier today with someone about the 1999 Women's World Cup tournament, and because it's a part of history now, I almost 
sort of take it for granted that it happened. But somebody asked me what I was feeling like during that tournament, covering it and watching it go from not having a lot of anticipation to over a three-week process becoming the biggest story in the United States of any kind. How did you experience that during the tournament, this you know, this tournament, the Women's World Cup that you had covered four years earlier when it didn't really make much of a dent in the public consciousness to becoming this juggernaut of a story? Yeah, I knew it was going to be big, Grant. I'd be lying if I said I saw a sold-out Rose Bowl for the final, but I think once the tournament got going and you saw the momentum and when they sold out at Giant Stadium and then got bigger crowds along the way, then you knew that if the U.S. got to that final, that it would be sold out. But it was a pretty steady rise in everything, whether it was ticket sales and merchandise to, if you, if you remember this, um, appearances on the David Letterman show at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, he adopted that team. Dan Rather, when he was doing CBS News, was talking about the women. We had celebrities at practice. So I think once it got started and once we got maybe into a, let's say, a quarterfinal stage, I mean, you knew this was huge. And then at that point, you know, the sky was the limit. And when it when it first started, somebody said to me, what would be a success for you? And I remember telling them, I think the U.S. has to get to the final for it to be considered a, a success. Because I thought, you know, if they get to the final, crowds are going to follow them. But then when we got to the final, I sort of changed my tune and I said, now I think they have to win it. <laughs> even though I would have still considered it a success, mm-hmm. I don't know who else would have or how would we look at it today it's still a sellout crowd right it's still a a chess match at the rose bowl but had china won that game instead of the u.s you know who knows what would have happened all those years after that yeah i obviously the coach of the u.s women's team in 1999 was uh, tony DeChico. you uh called the 2015 women's world cup games with tony and cat whitehill for fox and tragically, we lost Tony uh, in, since the 2015 Women's World Cup uh, to cancer. And is it something where uh, will you be thinking about him during this tournament? I know I will. I'm thinking about him right now, actually. And uh, um, this is getting fairly close to the anniversary of his death. Um, I always think of of Tony, uh, you know, ever since we lost him, he was a, I I consider him a very good friend and someone that taught me a lot about the game. Uh, I didn't know how serious the sickness or illness was at that time. I don't think many of us, if any of us, you know, knew at that time. Mm -hmm. I probably did the last game with Tony at a freezing Red Bull arena where I found out later he was going to help us out on the sideline, but it was so cold and he was so uncomfortable that he was watching the game from the truck. And I think that's the last time that I that I saw Tony. But I do think about him often. I think about him when I'm ready to do a women's game, whether it's a friendly or, in this case, she believes cup tournament. And without a doubt for the Women's World Cup, uh, I'll be thinking of him for sure. He was a great influence on me and I think was a great help to me and I will miss him. I do miss him. Yeah, I will too. Um 
your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You know, it just in some ways, you know, he was a very good broadcaster, but he also taught me a lot just at dinners and other uh, moments on the road, uh, sharing his experiences and his knowledge. Grant, uh, you know what's great about Tony? If you and he were having a conversation, right, and and you said to him something about a player, like if you said, I really think so-and-so is the best midfielder on the U.S. team, he would never pull rank on you and say, you know, you're crazy. You know, I've won the World <laughs> Cup. You're wrong. It's this one. He would respect your opinion, yeah. and he would just say simply, yeah, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I like this one. Yeah. And, and how many people, you know, in real life would be like that? He's already won a Women's World Cup, yet he will have a conversation with you, and, and he's a regular guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You'll be working with Allie Wagner yep. uh, at this World Cup. Uh, she obviously has had a rising star over the last several years uh, doing commentary for Fox, both the women's game and the men's game. Um, how do you guys, how have you built a chemistry together since you've been working together? I, I think sometimes with chemistry, it's kind of funny. I think I've always had a good chemistry with whatever broadcaster I'm working with. And I always think that that chemistry has started immediately. But but chemistry is something that you um, not acquire, but it grows over time, right? So the chemistry should get better. But I think when Ali and I started, just like when I started with whoever my broadcast partner was, whether it was Tommy Smith or Shep Messing or Ty Keogh, I'm just throwing names out. You know, first game, I always thought, wow, that's pretty good. But then it gets better. And then when you do tournaments with someone, you know, you're spending a lot more time together, whether it's um, more meetings, um, more coffees together, lunches, um, post whatever that is, you know, you're always talking about the game and, and you talk about things that are away from the field too and you develop that, that uh, rapport, if you will. Um, I've known Tony Miola since Tony was, I think, 19, <laughs> uh, playing in World Cup qualifiers. But I really got to know Tony when I did the World Cup with him last summer in Russia because I'm, 
I was there for, I think it was 40 days. And I would say I came pretty close to having three meals a day with Tony for 40 days. I mean, we were always together. We were always doing stuff, walking, talking, whatever that was, and doing the games. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where uh, it's great if you have a chemistry in the beginning, which Tony and I had, but then it develops over time. But that's where you really get to know your broadcast partners. When you're spending you know, 40 days with them, you're at airports, you're at hotels, you're in restaurants, you're in meetings, you're at stadiums. Um, you're with them as much as you are with your family, if not even more so. So that helps with the chemistry. Yeah, it really does become a a team environment in the TV realm. I've noticed that myself uh, doing TV work as compared to sort of my written work over the years. But uh, You're part uh, of a team, right? We're all part of a team. So if you're working a show with me, whether you're on the sideline or in the studio, wherever you are, you're part of that team, right? It's um, play-by-play, analyst, studio people, sideline, producer, director, everybody. It's all, that's our team. Yeah. Um, in 2015 for the Women's World Cup, you were part of a three-person booth calling the games. Uh, this summer, you'll be part of a two-person booth. How big of a difference is that from your perspective? I'm one of the people that actually likes a three-person booth if you have uh, some kind of diversity in that booth. I think it worked for us in 2015 because Tony had a coach's perspective, Kat had a player's perspective, and that was as a defender. I think that there's got to be something that's different about the two analysts. Maybe one is a forward, the other is a goalkeeper. You know, one's an attacker, one's a defender, one's a coach, one's an ex-player, whatever that is. And I think that we had that. I think to make a three-person booth work, play-by-play is the one that has to sacrifice. You're the orchestra leader. You have to take time away from yourself so that you can lead those two into uh, some on-air chemistry between them and get some educational points about the game on the air. So I I think that when you do a three-person booth, play-by-play does step back. And I enjoyed it. That was a great experience for me, working with three in the booth. I, I have no problem whether it's three or two. I think that when it's a two-person booth, you're not really changing anything because that's the way most games are done. But the three-person booth, I, I would do that at any time as long as you have the right balance, the right blend of people. And I know we had that in 2015. So here's a question I've got for you for the World Cup itself. People get sick often when they're working at a World Cup. Uh, right. You're not sleeping a heck of a lot. You're working pretty long hours. There's a lot of people transmitting stuff just by shaking hands. Uh, how do you not get sick during a World Cup? You sound like you're talking about the IBC, right? Because that's <laughs> everybody was working so close together in all those long hours and all that. So I, I understand that. I, I think I've been lucky. Uh, you have to say luck plays a part of it. I mean, you could be the the best liver in the world, right? You could not drink, not smoke, exercise, and still get food poisoning the night before a game, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you still have to have some luck. But I think, you know, I try to get proper rest. That was hard to do at times in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, what, whatever you take, whether it's emergency or airborne, I'm not giving commercial plugs out here, but... You know, those are some of the things that I might take if I feel even the slightest sniffle. You know, mm-hmm. if we're outside in the cold like the other night, I'm I'm layered. So it's a 
a um, couple of shirts that I'm wearing. Uh, one's a thermal. It's a scarf. The other night we had uh, hand warmers. We had toe warmers, but I didn't use those. So I, I just think you protect yourself as best you can. But but I also think you know you do have to be lucky. And I think for some of the people at the IBC, unfortunately, you know they're so close to one another. You're touching uh, a lot of things. You're shaking hands with everyone on a daily basis. At least when we were with our own group in, in Russia, it was pretty much uh, a group of four or five of us that were traveling together. So, mm-hmm. And nobody really that I can remember of our group was sick, so we were lucky there. Okay. Um, do you keep track, you've been doing this a long time, do you keep track of how many games of all types you've broadcast over the years? No, there's no way for me to do it either. It's thousands. It's not hundreds. It's thousands. Yeah. Um, I've done, just with Tommy Smith, well, I would say well over 3,000 events, whether it's games or shows. And when you think about that, that's a long time. But in the glory days of ESPN International, Tommy and I were under contract to do 200 events minimum, and we did that for over 10 years. That's 2,000 <laughs> right there. So... Even if I had calendars, Grant, which I do, I think my calendars go back to maybe uh, 2,000 maybe, but I don't have things marked in there where I would say, oh, I didn't do that game or that game got canceled. You know what I mean? So there's no way to look it back up. So there's no way for me to tell. It would easily be north of 5,000 events if I included hockey, but even with just soccer, I'm, I'm sure it's that. I mean, I've done a lot of indoor games games off the monitor games in different countries so um one time there was an announcer who celebrated whatever the number was uh i think i want to say it was three thousand something like that yeah and he he made a big deal of it and i thought wow that is a big deal and then i thought to myself i have no idea how many games i've done like how did he he must have counted them like as he went you know Ah. what i mean because even with even with the best researchers, um, that would be a full-time job, I think, for somebody to figure out. Because, you, like you said, I've been doing this. You'd have to go back to my indoor soccer days in 82. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a lot of games to try to count back. So I, I really have no idea, but it's definitely north of 5,000. <laughs> we have a lot of aspiring broadcasters who listen to this show. Um, and... I'd be curious to know what sort of advice you would give to them. Wow. I tell them to always stay grounded. That's one. Um, always be respectful to those that that you work with. Um, like I said before, you know, you're all part of a team. I would tell them to uh, watch all their games back, uh, critique themselves, I would tell them to watch other games of people that you respect, um, see what they do well, and and see maybe what they don't do well. You don't want to copy someone, but take the good from this one, the good from this one, the good from this one. Look at the bad from this one, this one, this one, and, and you'll you'll have your own style. But I I will always tell them uh, try to network yourself. Um, nobody's going to hire you without a tape. So make sure you can get a good tape or DVD or, or whatever the format may happen to be and and strive to be consistent because at the end, it's just like with an athlete, right? Any athlete can have a good year. 
what separates the good athlete from the great athlete? The consistency of the years, right? Somebody's had a 10-year career in the NBA, and every year they're averaging 25 points a game. That's a terrific player compared to somebody that played two years and then they're playing minor league basketball and you never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. So always work at a consistency. And one thing I've always told them too is when you watch a game back, if you've done a game, you might think you did a horrible job or a great job, but it's never as great as you thought it was and it's never as bad as you thought it was. And, and, don't, let, and don't let one game define you. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the Connecticut Fusion I'm so glad you asked. That's my team. That's my labor of love. Connecticut Fusion, United Women's Soccer. That was a team that Chet Messing and I started. We were going to be the owners of it, but uh, as we were looking for a place to play, uh, the DiTomaso family, who own and operate FSA, Farmington Sports Arena in Connecticut, offered to be the financial backer for this and have Shep and I run it, and that's what we did last year. For two guys that... Uh, hadn't done this before. I thought if we could pat ourselves on the back, second place finished, nine-team Eastern Conference, got to the playoffs, and we're one game away from getting to a Final Four. So now we're, we're putting more pressure on ourselves, Grant, because I told you about consistency. Yeah. So that's what we want now from our team. But it was it was, and is a labor of love. I'm, I'm not getting anything out of it other than the satisfaction of doing this. And at the end of our season – we, when I thanked some of our players for you know, their effort and their dedication, they thanked me for giving them that opportunity to play at that level. And to me, that was all I needed to hear. How do you have time to do any of this stuff? Uh, our coach, Tom D'Agostino, just asked me that the other day. Um, I make time. Uh, there's not a day that goes by without me thinking about the team. Um, some days I'm just sending emails to players. We have about 16 or 17 right, 17 players that are signed right now. Uh, we're looking at open tryouts for collegiate players, and they can't, they can't train with us unless they're on a spring break or, or some college break. You, you learn about these rules as you do these things. Yeah. And then for post-college players, we're looking for a tryout as well. But I do find the time to do it. Once the season gets started, I don't have to spend as much time. I'm trying to put a roster in place for our coach, but you're also dealing with sponsors that are, I can assure you, not easy to find. And you're dealing with uh, practice times, training times for certain groups, certain individuals. There's a lot more that goes into it than even I probably thought when I first started it. But there are some things we don't have to do in the second year that we had to do the first year. First year, we didn't even have a name no name, no colors, uh, no nothing, no players, no coach. So that had to come together rather quickly last year. This year, we already had maybe seven or eight returnees months ago. So probably a third of our roster was already set in, I want to say, November or December of this year, when in fact, a year ago, we didn't even have the franchise till after January. Wow. Well... JP Della Camera, thank you as always for coming on the show. Good luck with the Women's World Cup this summer. My pleasure. I will see you in France. All right. I want to thank JP Della Camera for joining me. Next up is my interview on soccer analytics with Ben McCreel. 
Joining me now is Ben McCreel, who's an executive vice president of Perform and the head of OptiPro. He and I were on a soccer analytics panel recently at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. It's good to be here. Yeah, lots to talk about here, but uh, maybe the best way to start is for me just to ask, what do you do in your job? Okay, so um, I run uh, the professional division of Opta. Um, so hopefully uh, people have know a little bit about Opta um, from broadcasts, from reading in the media. Um, we're basically the guys who do soccer data. Uh, we do do some other sports like rugby and cricket, but less interesting for the US audience. Um, but certainly in soccer, we've been primarily a kind of media-focused company. Uh, and providing data and, uh, and analytics to audiences through broadcasts. So if you see stats on an MLS broadcast, it's, it's coming from us. Um, but I run the professional division that focuses completely on supporting teams, leagues, federations on how they use data and analytics to support performance. Um, so whether that's improving team performance, uh, it could be to look at oppositions, um, or it could go into recruitment and scouting and, and how they use data and technology to support that. So um, I look after a, a team of about 80 people who are scattered 14 countries around the world. Uh, and we work with about 300 clubs and federations um, on kind of supporting their performance analytics. So you're clearly a global company. There are a few specific things I want to ask about, one of them being U.S. soccer yeah, and what U.S. soccer is doing these days uh, in the analytics field. And from what I've heard, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's we have a great relationship with you, the guys at U.S. soccer. Um, and it started probably three or four years ago. Um when we started to develop this relationship, we'd been working with, with MLS and with the clubs for, for a number of years. It's, it's actually one of our longest partnerships mm -hmm. is with MLS. Um, and so, you know, our footprint in, in, uh, in North America had really started to grow and, and the recognition was starting to be there as to what we could do to support, um, you know, soccer in the country. Um, and so we started to build this relationship with US Soccer. Um, and they have a really fascinating um, challenge um, and a way of going about it. You know, they have an enormous footprint in terms of youth soccer players all over this country. Um, as far as I'm aware, it's still one of the, the highest uh, participated sports in the country, um, particularly at youth level. But because of the size of the country, the unique challenges that that brings, um, they need to find a way of keeping track of uh, players from all over the uh, all over the states. Um, and so, one of the ways they can do that is through data. And and it's actually a very common thing that we have in Europe, where we say that you know data is one of the best ways to scout players across Europe. Um, because it saves money from travel expenses. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the things that US Soccer wanted to do. Um, and so our partnership with them has grown. Uh, we cover nearly 2,000 games a year from under 15s all the way up to the senior national team. Um, and that's on both the men's and women's side. And we're essentially tracking player performance from uh, not just MLS academies, but also local academies down to uh, you know park uh, soccer in the farthest reaches of the country. Um, and they are then tracking those players and looking to um, you know look at development process and, and how those those players are developing, mapping those against current national team players, um, you know players who have come through that system 
they're hoping that over you know the next five to ten years they're going to have such a large database of these players that they'll be able to keep track of them in a way that you know is is incredibly difficult because of the size of the country um so we're we're very much involved in that partnership with them we track all of that data we collect it all for them and pass that back to them uh, and we support them with the analytics and, and the processes behind that but you know the real expertise lies uh, in soccer house in chicago you know the guys there doing incredible things um and i have to say probably one of the uh, the best centralized data um processes of any federation that we work with anywhere mm. in the world this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by window their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead and after you can unwind using their free high-speed wi-fi tonight la quinta tomorrow you shine book your stay today at lq.com this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in shopify's there to help you grow Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How is that data collected? Like logistically? <laughs> yeah. So we have five offices um, around the world mm-hmm. um, and it's all done manually, um, believe it or not. Uh, and anyone that wants to come and see it, we've, we're more than happy to open the doors up. Um, we... We have three people for every game, um, and actually, you know, not for the for the youth soccer, but for every other um, high level soccer game, we cover it live. So mm-hmm. we do all of the data collection live, so we can go to broadcasters, so that you can go to the teams for in in play analysis. Um, so we have three people for every game. They're watching a live feed of the game, and they're collecting that through using hotkeys on a keyboard and then clicking on a screen to tell you what happened and where it happened. Uh, and then we have a third, sort of one person for each team and then a third person who's checking that data as it's going and they can scroll back in the video and kind of realign things if, if, if it wasn't right. So um, that process is happening every weekend in those five offices um, and we're collecting that level of data for about 45 domestic competitions around the world, all live, mm-hmm. um, and then all of the international um, games as well. And then that's piped back through either uh, feeds and uh, data feeds or through uh, the products that we provide to, to those teams. And when you're doing stuff for like US soccer youth ranks, it may not be live, but it's it's essentially the same process? It's exactly the same process, yeah. So for, whether it's uh, an under-15 game in uh, North Carolina somewhere or it's MLS, uh, you know, starting last weekend, um, you know, it's all exactly the same process. And this was more the topic of the panel that we were on uh, up in Boston, which is how analytics are being used with, uh, development, talent development, and and younger players. Uh, are there any sort of really important things that you've learned about that aspect of data and what can potentially be useful when you're dealing with a large number of youth players who may not be even fully grown? Yeah, so obviously that's a huge challenge. Um, you know, I think in any sport, projecting talent is incredibly difficult. 
Uh, and one of the things we found in soccer, um, and this applies to senior recruitment analysis, uh, in, in, you know, it applies to, to performance analysis, is you have to understand the style of the game that you're watching or that you're analyzing um, or the league that you're analyzing because actually that has a huge effect on, the t- on a player's performance. We see all the time, particularly in Europe, you know, players transferring from different le- leagues and competitions um, and the impact that that has on their ability to adapt um, because the game is different, the speed is different, the physicality is different. Um, and so when we're looking at youth youth players, it's, very, it's a very similar problem. But actually, it kind of uh, gets worse because most youth soccer, and I'm being a little bit general here, but I've watched a lot of it, it's very possession-based. Mm-hmm. They pass the ball a lot and they don't get pressured a lot. Mm. Um, there's a lot of mistakes, obviously, but they all want to play the beautiful game in the way it was intended. Um, now, as we very well know, that's not always the case. I had a, I worked with a manager once who I sat down with him and he said, uh, for the first time, I, I just joined the club uh, and I wanted to get under the skin of, of what his football philosophy was. And he sat me down and he said, um, we all want to play like Barcelona, but we can't. So we have to play with what we have. And yes, we want to evolve our football philosophy. We want to play the game you know, as, as attractively as we can because we are an entertainment industry at the end of the day. But I haven't got Messi and you know, Busquets and players like that. So I have to play the way it fits. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges in youth development is that um, when we're analyzing the data, it's such high volume of passes and such high volume of events for players that you sort of have to um, manipulate that and weight that um, to understand how efficient a player is. So one of the best um, pieces of analysis that I've seen on youth development is about efficiency of players. How quickly can they make decisions? How quickly can they move the ball? Um, Are they taking two, three, four, five touches and three, four, five seconds on the ball every time they get it? Or are they able to play... does the ball move through them quickly? Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the elements that we spend a lot of time on um, is understanding the style of the, the soccer that we're watching and then being able to uh, manipulate the data to understand h- how that could project to future performance. Now, one thing that came up that I thought was interesting last week was that the data that's being collected in different countries on youth players is not transferable country to country yeah yeah it's it's an interesting interesting i mean the first thing to say is that there is a level of um you know protecting young players Mm. and actually just protecting young people um you know we take our the integrity of our data and, and the way that we store it and collect it incredibly seriously um and you know there's things like now in the uk gdpr where we have to be very careful about how we protect our data and and that's a really important thing for us um but also you know the federations and the leagues they want to protect their young players they you know the data is available to to teams in in their own country um and actually even that's only a recent development so um when i first started in the industry you know 11 or 12 years ago we only had the data for our team in our games Mm-hmm. We didn't have the opposition's data and we certainly didn't have data from the other games that were happening in, in youth leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only been in recent years that that data has become more available. But again, only within the league that you play or in the country that you're in. And it's a smart move. You know, the, the, uh, 
you know, there are certainly a plenty now British players who are being stolen by Germany. You know, the US has had plenty of players that have, have gone over to Germany. Um, I imagine the Germans would be very interested in any youth data that we had on US soccer players or similarly in, in the UK. Um, so it is an interesting part of our industry uh, and how that data is protected. I think it, you know, I can understand why it happens, but actually we do have one case. Um, so in we work with the KNVB in, in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Federation for, for Holland, and um, they actually open their data up. Hmm. Um, in what way? So that you can access, uh, if you are working for a team and you're you're using one of our solutions, you can access um, not the full performance data, but you can access biographical data and playing data hmm. on youth players in, in the Netherlands. Hmm. Um, and again, that was a smart move because they recognize that they are a selling country. Um, they need their players to go play abroad. They need their talent to be taken elsewhere to, to continue their development. And that ultimately brings financial uh, recognition back to the league and back to the, the teams in the league. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> there's two sides to it, to everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Okay. Are there any particular countries that are more right now welcoming of data analysis in soccer than others that might be more resistant? Um, so countries that welcome the geeks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it would be, uh, I think it'd be a very obvious statement to make, but but it's true that um, certainly North America has been very welcoming to the, to the analytics community in soccer. Um, you know, the UK, it took a long time. Uh, and actually, you know, we're still fighting through that. I think um, one of the challenges we have in, in the UK is that, you know, soccer is so ingrained in our culture um it is the number one sport by a good distance but we're also um you know very ingrained in the way we do things um and so that's been a huge challenge to kind of uh, ingratiate ourselves to coaches and really get them to understand why this is important i think over here it's it's um you have a head start because of your other sports um, because of how that culture exists and the fact that um, data and technology is such a huge part of those other sports and generally people who are coming up through the development system will have played baseball at some point and will have played football at some point Um, so I think that certainly helps Um, but you know that's not to say there aren't challenges here as well with uh, with some of that culture Um, and sometimes it can go the other way and, and and you know, it's interesting. Recently, we um, we acquired a company that we'd worked with for a long time, um, who uh, called Scout Seven, who um, had been in the industry for twenty years, <coughs> providing a database and a platform to um, write your scouting reports on. So, very much the core of the game. You know, the old yeah. school way of of scouting players, which to me is incredibly valuable. You know, my background was was across that as well. Uh, I've written my fair share of scouting reports and. Um, it, that was important for me because to show that we are a holistic, there is a holistic approach to the game uh, and that we are not trying to force data on anybody um, and that we recognize it's only part of the puzzle. Um, and I think that's the major story that we have to give. Um, so, you know, the, uh, I would say that the Premier League, for you know, for obvious reasons, and, and, and MLS are right up there in terms of their use of data, but then you find some pockets of, uh, of, clubs in certain countries who are doing some incredible things um probably way out of their budget and way out of you know what you'd expect 
uh, if I was able to list them, I think, you know, people would be fascinated by how they're able to do something that, you know, some of the bigger clubs in Europe and in Champions League particularly aren't doing those things. And, and you know, it's very much a choice at this stage. Yeah, my next thing as a journalist would be to say, well, feel free to list those things. But like what's happening, obviously, is proprietary knowledge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, again, uh, like with the integrity of the data for youth players, we take the integrity of our relationships with those clubs and, and federations very seriously. You know, we've been very fortunate, actually, that someone like US Soccer was was relatively open to talking about some of their processes. Um, but at the end of the day, there's competitive advantage. Um, and so, you know, we we spend a lot of time working very closely with clubs in the same country, um, I can go from one training ground to another training ground in the same day um, and be working with them on very proprietary information. Um, and, and we've had to build that trust over a long time. It takes a long time for clubs to trust that you're not taking something from one place and going to another place and, and sharing that with a team they're trying to compete for a title with. So it takes time. In terms of other sports compared to soccer, uh, where are we right now in soccer in the development and use of analytics? So the biggest challenge we have, I think, is that um, soccer is very much a global game. Um, And because of the scale of that and because of the fact that each league controls its own destiny to a large extent, you know, FIFA and UEFA, um, you know, probably don't have the control over each league in the way that maybe NFL does or or Major League Baseball does. and so that provides a challenge for them. And they're, they're doing some really interesting work at the moment around trying to standardize the way data is collected. Um, and there was some, some articles come out recently about that. And um, that's, an, that's an interesting process, but it's a very difficult one because each league wants to control their own data collection. They want to know what data they're getting. There's the competitive advantage between leagues as well. Um, so they're all fighting for broadcast rights and those types of things. Um, so that's one of the biggest challenges in the, is that each league controls what data they can get and, and, and what they want to use. Um, so that's probably slowed progress, um, particularly when it comes to new data sets like tracking data. Um, you know, player tracking data is still relatively in its infancy in soccer. Um, most of the major leagues in, in Europe and, and, uh, and you know, North America and South America have got a version of tracking data. Um, but it varies country to country. It's an expensive bit of kit. Um, and so installations and things like that are very expensive. So that's probably where we are behind the other sports. You know, we've see, we see on Sunday night football and Monday night football that, you know, uh, even this season, I think they were tracking the kickers, um, kicking distance using uh, the golf system track man. Um, so even things like that are making its way to broadcast. Um, you know, Major League Baseball have done some great things with StatCast and, and showing fielding out probabilities and, and those types of things. We're not there yet. Um, now, what's interesting for me running the professional part of this of this business is that we're the, generally the first ones to get it. You know, something like expected goals um, that's really started to find its way into the media in the last couple of years. We started using that in, in the pro space in about 2011, 2012. Mm. Um, so it takes three or four years before it starts to seep into the media and into the kind of public consciousness. Mm. Generally, in the professional space, we've been using it for a while. Um, and that's, you know, that's the same with tracking data. We've had tracking data in the Premier League in various forms for probably about 10 years. Mm. Um, but 
the ability to use that it's a very different data set it's a very complex data set um, and also trying to understand what you can get out of it um, you know my my guys at Opta they get very uh, bored of me saying this but you know whatever data we have it's got to have a tactical relevancy you know it's got to have an impact on performance otherwise we're wasting our time um, so the ability to understand player tracking data and be able to apply that to tactics uh, and be able to then show that to a coach and, and get that conversation going about why this data impacts performance that's the holy grail for every analyst um, and so that's you know that's our next big challenge in soccer is to really harness the power of tracking data link that to the the on-ball event data that we already have and really start to use that to be a powerful tool for understanding performance. Uh, we mentioned U.S. soccer earlier. Is there anything MLS is doing that stands out to you right now? What's always been fascinating about our relationship with MLS is their unbridled ambition around innovation. Um, and I have to say, I do love spending time with the guys at, at MLS. I always come out kind of very invigorated and, and excited by what's next um, because they do want to be at the forefront uh, and we've seen that even in their broadcasts that they always try and push push the envelope when it comes to that um, so as a league they're very focused on innovation um, you know even down to very small things like their fantasy game is probably the best soccer fantasy game that exists it uses way more data than anyone else's um, it uses more interesting data than anyone else's um, so very little things like that actually show where the league is trying to get to. Um, so as a league, they're, they're very focused on, on the innovation piece and, and will continue to do over the next few years. They've got some really exciting plans. Um, and then from a club perspective, you know, kind of my bread and butter, they've always been at the forefront of this. And, and actually one of the most interesting things about MLS is the analyst community that exists. Mm -hmm. Um they're very joined up. There is actually a working group in MLS that um, of the analysts from each of the clubs that mm. meet on a regular basis to discuss the future of, of data and, and how they can harness it the best. Mm. You know, that doesn't exist in other leagues. You know, people don't want to chat like that. Um, you know, we've done a reasonably good job in the Premier League of, of getting guys together. We have a, a forum every year in February that kind of brings everyone together and, and actually um, brings them alongside the blogging community a community that i didn't even realize existed until uh -huh. until i joined opta but it's a huge uh, uh -huh. a huge community um and they're doing some incredible things as well you know guys who are doing cancer research by day and soccer analytics by night is is an incredible thing um and so again it's just a way of harnessing that information and that talent to influence what we're doing in the game but um, but MLS is certainly as a league and, and certainly by individual clubs is, is well out there in terms of what they're doing in terms of your story I'm curious to know how did you get to the point where you're doing what you're doing now what was your path uh, yeah I, I don't know whether, how interesting it is but um, uh, I guess it started um, I, I played a lot of sports as a kid um, and continue to do actually um, but uh I started, you know, playing cricket, um, huge cricket fan. Um, and But actually, my the sport that I probably played to the highest level was, was field hockey. Hmm. Um, so I, I represented Wales in field, field hockey. Um, and when I was um, 17, 18, just before I was about to go to university, uh, I got injured at a major tournament. Um, we were out in Italy and, um, you know, had basically 10 days where I wasn't going to play. Um, 
and so I kind of spent some time with the analyst and, and he was just pulling video together of our opposition and um, I didn't have a lot else I could do so I sort of helped out and that you know got my interest in analysis and data and how that could help performance um, I'm a huge Boston sports fan and I have been since I was a kid on a Sunday afternoon uh, was one of the best days of my childhood we had um, at the NBA highlight show um, followed by some NFL um, mm-hmm. football um, and then uh, Serie A uh, football as well after that so it was a perfect afternoon for me as a kid um, so my interest in the way data was probably being used in the sports I probably didn't understand it at the time mm. but I think that influenced what I wanted to do next so I went on to university and studied sports science um, and analytics and um got an opportunity to go and work for Everton Football Club um, as an academy analyst. Um, So spent two and a half years there. A fantastic club that I couldn't have wished for a better grounding in the game. Um, I think I may have mentioned on the panel at the weekend the the best piece of advice I ever got. Um, And I honestly don't think I'd be here without this piece of advice. Um, I walked into Everton Football Club a little bit in awe of the place. And, you know, we had some pretty talented players at the time. Um, And at the same time, I'd, I'd... you know, I'd watched a lot of soccer as a kid. I, I knew the game. Um, and someone sat me down. I must have come across a little bit arrogant at 18. Um, and they sat me down and said, look, you are here to provide analysis. You're here to provide a different insight into the game. And that's where your skill set lies. But you don't know football. You don't know the game. So learn from all these people that do. You're going to be sat with coaches and managers and former players that have played this game all their lives and have played at the highest level. So just sit and listen. And that is the best piece of advice I've ever been given. Um, And so I spent the next 10 years sat in meetings and and rooms with coaches and um, and managers and players listening to them um, and learning the game. And and that was, uh, you know, amazing. And I think that's, probably again one of the the advice i give to a lot of people who want to get into this side of the industry um is that you you may be the smartest analyst in the room you might be the smartest person with data but i can almost guarantee you won't be the smartest soccer person in the room so make sure you learn that piece as well um so i then went and spent 10 years um, working for five premier league clubs um started as a sort of performance analyst working on opposition analysis I spent some time at Fulham doing that role um, during, you know, probably the most successful period of the club's history, which was was amazing. Um, And then went on into scouting roles um, at a couple of Premier League clubs um, to set up their European scouting department, but all powered by data. Um, We didn't have scouts in every country. There was, you know, a couple of the clubs, there was two or three of us who could go and cover European football, which is, which is tough. So we use data instead. Um, we started, always started with the data to whittle down our targets and then would go and watch those, those, um, those players. So, um, yeah, I, I had an amazing grounding. I was, you know, a lot of it is about timing. So I was very fortunate to find my way into Everton. And, and then from there, worked with some of, you know, the most talented managers and coaches that I could possibly wish for. Um, to really learn the game and really understand how it works and whether that's on the pitch or actually off the pitch and, and the process that goes on in terms of making decisions and, you know, not always the way you'd, you'd want it to be made. But, um, you know, that was a fascinating insight. And, and I love my time in the game. 
and I, I certainly uh, will never dismiss going back at some point. Um, but again, in this role over the last three years, I've been very fortunate to travel all around the world, um, working with teams everywhere um, and understanding their processes and understanding the cultural challenges, the market challenges that, that you know teams and federations have um, and just trying to support their processes and, and trying to help them apply the data and the technology in the best way. Well, as we saw last week in Boston, uh, this is not only a growing field, there are a lot of people aspiring to work in it. Uh, and so that's one reason I wanted to ask you about your path and also appreciate the advice that uh, you're able to share there because uh, there's clearly a lot of people who, who are wanting to go into the field. Uh, ben McCreel, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much, Grant. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank JP Delacamera and Ben McCreel, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. See you next time.